0: It's Thursday, November 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The House's public impeachment hearings got underway on Wednesday with testimony from top State Department official George Kent and the top U.S. diplomat to Ukraine, Bill Taylor. One new thing that we learned was that one of Taylor's staff members said they overheard Trump on a phone call asking about the investigations. Bringing the president closer to the Ukraine pressure campaign. Alex Gangitano, reporter at The Hill, joins us to break down the impeachment testimony. Next, Google has partnered with one of the US's largest healthcare systems on an initiative called Project Nightingale to collect detailed personal health information of millions of people in 21 states. The problem is that neither Google nor its healthcare partner notified patients or doctors that they were collecting the data. Sarah Needleman, tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more on this story which has triggered a federal inquiry. Finally, another update on the ongoing outbreak of vaping-related illnesses. Last month, a 17-year-old boy whose lungs were damaged so badly by vaping received a double lung transplant. The patient's lungs were scarred, stiffened, and had various spots of dead tissue. Denise Grady, reporter at The New York Times, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Following
1: the call with President Trump, the member of my staff asked Ambassador Sondland what President Trump thought about Ukraine. Ambassador Sondland responded that President Trump cares more about the investigations of Biden, which Giuliani was pressing for.
0: Joining us now is Alex Gangitano, reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Hi, thanks for having me. So we are in the first public phase of the impeachment inquiry. We have two people testifying That is William Taylor. He's the ambassador in Ukraine. And we also have George Kent, who is the deputy assistant secretary of state. We only got one kind of, I think, new development out of this. And that has to do with William Taylor's testimony. He's basically said that one of his staffers overheard a conversation between President Trump and the ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, Basically asking about the investigations that are kind of at the center of this whole thing. What did we learn from that?
1: So, we heard from Bill Taylor that his member of his staff, what is accompanying Gordon Sollen, he met with a Zelenki advisor. Excuse me. Following that meeting, while his staff was present at the restaurant, Sollen called President Trump and told him about the meetings. According to Taylor, the member of his staff could overhear Trump asking about the investigations over the phone. So, that's something that clearly kind of aligns Gordon Sulin and Trump. Trump has said in the past that he barely knows Gordon Sulin, that they weren't working together in this plan. But Bill Taylor, kind of according to his aide, who he seems to trust here, that this is a phone call that happened. I think someone even asked, was the president speaking loudly on the phone enough for your aide to definitely be able to hear him correctly? And he said yes. So following the call with Trump, the member of his staff asked what Suland thought that the president thought about Ukraine. And basically, Suland said that Trump cares more about the investigations of
0: Biden. The Democrats are trying to connect the dots on this quid pro quo between the president and this military aid and even the visit to the White House for President Zelensky from Ukraine. And while they can't get the president on the exact wording, there's never the direct connection Mm -hmm. between the president and all of this. This really points to kind of the pressure campaign by all of the aides, Rudy Giuliani, Gordon Sondland, all these other people. And this is where William Taylor was testifying to basically hearing all of this stuff play out. These are all the players that were involved that were making this pressure campaign, Democrats say, was at the direction of the president.
1: Democrats are really having him repeat if this is something in his years of public service that he's seen happen at this kind of pressure campaign that Giuliani is pushing. And again, he said, no, this is not something that is normal. And the GOP's lawyer kind of used interesting wording. He acknowledged that it was maybe an irregular channel um, to work with the Ukraine right. um, through this pressure campaign, but it's not outlandish. And so even just acknowledging that yeah this might be a little out of the ordinary but is it an impeachable offense here
0: the democratic side and the republican side both got 45 minutes to question william taylor and george kent What did you make of their styles and the substance that they got out of that? On the Democratic side, they basically laid out their whole plan and try to connect as many dots as possible. On the Republican side, they tried to focus on Hunter Biden and Burisma and why was he even there? They spent a majority of the time trying to delve into that. And I kind of felt like it wasn't very effective because William Taylor, they're not involved in any of that stuff. So the answers were very much, I don't know.
1: William Taylor and George Kent have distanced themselves from the Bidens in the sense of just saying we weren't involved with Hunter Biden's business operations with Ukraine, whereas Ranking member Nunes is continuing to push them to question what's the full extent of Hunter Biden's involvement with this Ukrainian natural gas company. Of course, also the Republicans want Hunter Biden and the whistleblower to testify. And so the Democrats are continuing to shut that down. And of course, Nunes, who is considered a Trump ally, is also pushing what Democrats call these conspiracy theories out of the White House that have to do with Hunter Biden in the Ukraine.
0: Jim Jordan specifically was making the argument over and over again that there is no wrongdoing in all of this for two reasons. One, the military aid that is at question here was eventually released. And the other mm-hmm. thing was that there was no investigation done by the Ukrainians. So therefore, since the aid was released, the investigation didn't happen. There is no there there. Because these things didn't happen, which are the center of the Democrats' argument, it's impossible for the president to have done a quid pro quo in all of this.
1: And Jordan, who, definitely important to note, isn't actually on the panel. He was placed on by minority leader Kevin McCarthy. He's kind of the... Republicans attack dog. somebody who Trump trusts to question here. So he went on to note that Taylor had met with Zelensky during the period of the time that the aid was delayed, and tried to make a connection between it and the investigations. And Taylor said that it was his clear understanding that these two things were linked. And then Jordan, in kind of his attack dog nature, said that his understanding must have been wrong. We also right. saw Jordan accuse I guess, might have been how Taylor took from it, of being a star witness. This is you and George Ken are the first people that Democrats have brought out here. So you must be the star witness. You must be against Trump and pushing for impeachment. And this is something that Taylor has been really strong about saying, I'm not pushing either side here. I'm just trying to tell people what I've heard, what I've seen and let you all make the decision.
0: Right. Alex Gagetano, Mm -hmm. reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. I
1: appreciate it.
2: without notifying patients or doctors, has begun sharing with Google uh, personally identifiable information on millions of patients. So we're talking about names and birth dates, lab tests, doctor diagnoses, medication, hospitalization history, uh, some billing claims, and other clinical records.
0: Joining us now is Sarah Needleman, tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. It is my pleasure. We're going to be talking about Google's project Nightingale. It's gotten a lot of attention since you guys at The Wall Street Journal Did a report talking about it. Basically, Google has engaged with one of the U.S.'s largest healthcare systems, Ascension, based in St. Louis. They're a Catholic chain of about 2,600 hospitals, doctors' offices, and other facilities. And they're collecting detailed personal health information from millions of Americans across 21 states. And a lot of people were not happy to know that possibly some of their information could have been collected for this. Sarah, tell us what the project is about and then some of the other details following that, because now that this news has come out, it has triggered a federal inquiry into this.
2: This initiative is basically a partnership between Google and Ascension. And under this partnership, uh, Ascension, without notifying patients or doctors, as you said, has begun sharing with Google personally identifiable information on millions of patients. So we're talking about names and birth dates, lab tests doctor diagnoses, medication, hospitalization history, some billing claims, and other clinical records. And the idea is for Google to move that data into its cloud computing system and be able to use technology to make suggestions on things that patients may or may not want to do, for example, artificial intelligence would maybe suggest a certain treatment plan, or it may automatically predict and map the outcome of certain procedures or medications for a particular patient.
0: Part of the problem is that Google wants to help create these next systems that the hospitals and everybody can use. You know, Obviously, they're doing this with Ascension right now, but the thought process is that they could sell this to other hospitals and other healthcare systems. And you need all this information to train the AIs To create the system. And while a lot of people would say, hey, this would be a great thing when you're getting the data of a bunch of people without their permission, that is the big problem. But Google themselves say that this is all perfectly legal
2: under HIPAA, which it refers to the Federal Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. That generally allows hospitals to share data with business partners without telling patients as long as the information is used to help the uh, covered entity carry out its healthcare functions. So right now, privacy experts are saying that it, it does appear permissible under federal law, but nevertheless, the government is looking into just exactly how this data will be handled, who's going to be handling it, what are the potential uses for it, and And Google has said they do not plan to use it to sell advertisements. But there are many other potential uses that are being questioned and scrutinized right now because it's unclear. There could be research possibilities, and that's something Google has not commented on.
0: The Wall Street Journal first reported this on Monday. And since then, everybody was up in arms. There was lawmakers that were not happy with this. The optics of this are really bad because patients and doctors themselves really didn't know that this information was being shared. So now there is a federal inquiry. Lawmakers want to know more about what's going on here because they're scared that there's not being enough done to adequately protect patient data in this.
2: Mind the HIPAA law was passed decades ago, well, well before we were thinking in terms of this kind of technology. Just it's not something we were able to fathom at the time. And so now the question is, you know, just because it is legal to not disclose this information, maybe that no longer makes sense. Maybe now in 2019 that law no longer applies, or perhaps it's because of the scope of this. We're talking about such a large amount of data that lawmakers didn't foresee back in 1996. And so just in, in, in an era now when we're so concerned about privacy and we see how technology capture, you know, so much personal data and and how it's out there and and the risks that come with that data being exposed to potential bad actors, you have to stop for a moment and pause and think and say, well, whether or not it was legal doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing for everybody involved. So there could be potential positive outcomes. Some doctors say that they uh, are looking forward to the opportunity for records to be uh, more easily attainable, perhaps across state lines, more quicker when someone's life is on the line and there's a very short period of time to be able to access and information quickly is important. So there are many different moving parts here to, to take into consideration.
0: People always think, oh, this is always is a big business dealing. And while experts do say that Google could get tens of millions of dollars if they repeat this work that they're doing for other healthcare clients and whatnot, Google, for mm-hmm. their part, said that they're not making any money on this right now, or not they're not charging oh. Ascension anything for this.
2: Right now, Google is not being paid for the work, but Ascension is incurring costs as it trains its staff to uh, use Google's technology. So they did not disclose the financials of the deal, but you have to imagine that at some point there will be financial benefits to be reached by any company that performs a service, especially of this size. And like you did point out, once this technology is gone through the test and and it's been established, it is something that could potentially be repeatable with other healthcare concerns besides Ascension. And then that's where um, Google could potentially make lots of money down the road. So this is a, a business with shareholders, and that's how the world works. So certainly we can expect to see some sort of monetary outcome on behalf of Google for this.
0: Sarah Needleman, tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My
2: pleasure. On the 15th of October, our team performed what we believe the first double lung transplant done in the nation for a vaping injury victim. And our teenage patient Would have faced certain death if it weren't for the
0: lung transplant. Joining us now is Denise Grady, reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Denise. Thanks for having me. We've been following the story of all these vaping-related lung illnesses. I think right now over 2,000 people have been sickened by this, and just about 40 people have died because of this. Just last week, we heard the CDC identify a potential culprit, vitamin E acetate. But right now, the latest thing that we heard is that there was actually a life-saving surgery done on a 17-year-old. He had a double lung transplant because his lungs had deteriorated so badly. He would have died if he did not get this transplant. Denise, tell us a little bit about this story.
3: This all began when he was is when he got sick and he passed his 17th birthday in the middle of it. So this is a young teenage boy. Nobody knows what he was vaping. At least the doctors didn't disclose it. But he got sick in September and wound up in the hospital. And the first thought was that he looked like he had pneumonia. And he got sicker and sicker and was put on a ventilator to help him breathe. And that was not working well enough. He was transferred to to another hospital where they took a pretty desperate measure of hooking him up to another machine that bypasses your lungs and puts the oxygen right into your bloodstream. And they use that for people with lung failure. And they tried that for a while. And even that wasn't working. Even with that, they could not get enough oxygen into him to keep him alive. And meanwhile, he just was not improving. If anything, he was getting worse. So then he was transferred again to Henry Ford. Hospital in Detroit, which has the ability to do a lung transplant. And they realized that he didn't have very much time left and they put him on the list for a transplant. And this is something that's not decided. Whether you are a or whether you get to the top of the list isn't up to the hospital. It's a national organization that sets criteria for this. And because he was so young and he had so little time left and his lungs were just pretty much destroyed, he went to the top of the list and somebody else's bad luck was his good fortune and he got a pair of lungs from a deceased donor. And he had that surgery on October 15. They didn't really start talking about it until this week, and apparently he's doing well.
0: Researchers have described the lung damage from this vaping illnesses that they have seen as like chemical burns, similar to people who have inhaled toxic fumes from like industrial accidents, things like that. What did this patient's lungs look like?
3: The doctor said he'd never seen anything like it. He said there were dead spots in the lungs and they were scarred and stiff. It was hard to even get them out of his chest. And the doctor said, this is an evil that I've never seen in 20 years of doing lung transplants. He said he'd never seen anything like it.
0: We don't know exactly the name of this patient, but the family did want to get the word out about this. Obviously, now that he's doing a little bit better... But they wanted to get the word out as a cautionary tale to anybody who is vaping or even the people that might be going through this right now that are ill as well, just that this is bad news.
3: They said that they hoped that, you know, if it would save somebody else, it would be worth it. And they made a point of saying that before this happened, he was a perfectly healthy kid. They said he was an athlete and doing well in school, had lots of friends. And then he gets sick. And the next thing you know, he wakes up in the hospital with a tube down his throat and a new set of lungs in his chest. It's just been a horrendous time for them, it sounds like.
0: He is lucky that he does have youth on his side. So doctors think that that will help him in his recovery and the longevity of life. But the median survival rate after somebody has a lung transplant is about seven years. And second transplants are possible if they need to do that. So we'll have to obviously wait to see what happens with him. But you did mention that the doctors didn't say whether he was using regular nicotine vaping products or THC vaping products. From what we know about this illness so far, the majority of people that have come down with this illness are related to THC vaping products. That's why they use that vitamin E acetate to kind of thicken up the agent so that they can make more profits. So that's kind of an important distinction to know exactly what this patient was using because we're trying to figure out where the source of all this illness is coming from.
3: I guess the family did not want that talked about. Either they didn't want to talk about it, maybe they weren't even sure themselves. I don't know. But the question came up with the doctors when they were talking to reporters about it, and they just said, we can't really go there. We can't talk about that. And the CDC says that most of the cases really are from people who were vaping THC, but they're not ready to rule out nicotine yet because they said that there are some cases where people swear that they have vaped only nicotine and you know you might think maybe they're not telling the truth but apparently in some of these cases the state health departments have investigated them and they say that some of these stories really do stand up and they are credible and so it doesn't seem like any of these vaping products are off the hook yet.
0: Denise Grady, reporter at the New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.